thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk, The Naked Scientist. Chris, good morning. Welcome. Lovely to be with you hey, again. Hey, good morning. Yeah. Likewise. Wonderful. Now, electronics, the relationship between electronics and illnesses and health, um, is it's just going up a notch with a new development in this area. Tell us about it. Yes. Good morning, Reedy, and good morning, everybody. Uh, an interesting story this week, which has come out of Stanford in California, Stanford University. A lady called Ada Poon has come up with a very clever way of transmitting energy wirelessly into medical implants. We could have done this in the past, but the devices involved would have been huge and they wouldn't have been very efficient and they may not have even been very safe. But basically what she's done is to produce a device which consists of a flat sheet of material, rather rather like the size of a credit card, which you would lay on your skin. And at each of the four corners of the credit card are these horseshoe-shaped uh, transmitters which produce microwaves at about 1.6 gigahertz. That's slightly lower, about 50% uh, lower frequency than your microwave oven in your kitchen and they beam a series of microwave pulses because they're all interconnected uh, and they send the microwave energy into the underlying tissue and you then embed a tiny device which can be the size just of a grain of rice and weighing about a twentieth of a gram. It can be tiny and in that device can be a little coil of wire which picks up the energy in the microwaves and in fact it can pick up something like uh, about 200 microwatts of energy which is about 25 times more energy than you need to run a pacemaker for example and it can then pick up the energy and use it to run microcircuitry or do useful tasks and in their experiments they make a tiny implantable pacemaker which they're able to put into the heart of, of rabbits and by putting these devices on the surface of the rabbit they can then control the heart rate um, and heart rhythm of these rabbits demonstrating a proof of concept that it works because most medical implants are not governed by the size of the circuitry they're governed by the size of the battery and so if you don't have to engineer your devices around cumbersome bulky batteries you can produce much more space efficient much tinier devices which can be used to access the parts that other medical implants currently can't so you could for instance put tiny implants into the brain for deep brain stimulation to control certain disorders like mood disorders and also movement disorders you could put them into pain pathways to control pain and of course you can control heart rate to do the job of a pacemaker our lines are open for you. What's on your mind? What do you want to ask the Naked Scientist on 021-446-0567-011-8830702? So uh, keep that in mind. Exciting, isn't it? Physicians, Thomas, treating your disease with electronics rather than drugs. That that sounds fabulous. Hey, will you subject yourself to that? Okay, good. Robinson in Soshanguve. Hi. Hi. Hi, morning, Chris. Sometimes the star is referred to as a star. My question is this. What is the difference between the star, the sun and other stars? Okay. The difference between the sun and other stars. 
Good morning, Robinson. Well, the answer is that the sun is a star, um, unless you mean by other stars, people like uh, Rod Stewart and <laughs> Tina Turner. Uh, I, I gather you probably don't. Um, but, but the sun is one of a, a number of stars. Stars come in different shapes and sizes, and this determines their lifetime and how hot and bright they are. And we talk about different classes of stars, and the biggest stars are burning their fuel the fastest and they will be brightest, hottest and also bluest. That doesn't mean blue as in smutty humour, it means as in the colour of light they give out. And as they get smaller down the scale, then they are more red and eventually they're, in, they're what we call brown dwarfs, which are kind of failed stars. And our sun is roughly a middle size, or re relatively small star, and what that means is that it's ideal for us because it will have a relatively long lifetime because very big stars burn their fuel very, very fast and then they catastrophically blow themselves to pieces in a devastating explosion called a supernova whereas smaller stars like our sun um, they bumble along much more slowly producing a much more stable heat output and that means that you've got time for things like life to evolve on earth and then the planet to evolve into a stable situation so our, st our star is one of probably I think NASA currently estimate there are at least a sextillion stars in the universe and that's one with 22 zeros after it so mm -hmm. it's one of very many a billion billion to put it another way Okay, let's go to uh, Lauren in Newlands. Hi. Hello, are you still there? Yes, we are. We've always been here. What's on your mind? Um, I'm wanting to speak about um, what's been done on uh, with myelin on the um, for multiple sclerosis at the at the at, at, at the work that is being done in Cambridge. Chris, did you get that? The uh, hello, Lauren. Great, uh, I, th yeah. I think I understand what you're, you're referring to. And you're referring to the condition multiple sclerosis, which is where the immune system attacks a coating around nerve cells in the brain and spinal yeah. cord called yeah. myelin. And in people who are unfortunate enough to suffer multiple sclerosis, uh, for some reason, and we don't know why this happens, the immune system decides that the myelin sheath, which is rather akin to the electrical insulation around a cable, and it helps information to travel faithfully along nerve cells. For some reason, the immune system attacks that myelin, but not everywhere, in certain parts of the brain. And this leads to so-called demyelination, and the nerve cells that are demyelinated in the affected part of the brain temporarily work less well. And then the brain repairs itself and the symptoms improve for a while and then the disease can come back and it can attack the same area again or another area. And there's, there can be a, a slow decline in the function of certain parts of the jobs that the nervous system does. And so scientists are trying to repair the damage by exploring how the brain repairs itself and whether or not it's possible to put new cells into the brain to help the brain to form new myelin or whether to try to stop the immune attack on the brain. And one quite successful trial that's been done in recent years is using a drug called, well, it was called Campath, because it was invented in the Cambridge University Pathology Department. It's a, a molecule called anti-CD52, for those who are interested. And this particular drug blocks the action of T-cells, which are the cells in the immune system that attack other cells. And it stops the T-cells in the immune system attacking the myelin-producing cells, and in this way, you don't only stop the disease getting worse, but what's interesting is in the trials they've recently done, patients also show an improvement in their function, and this suggests that more of the 
precursor or stem cells that can produce myelin-producing cells are slowly turning into myelin-producing cells and repairing some of the damage in the nervous system that had been done before. And the, the long-term question now is, will, will these people continue to improve or will there be a plateau point at which uh, they, they can't improve any further? And that's what the scientists are looking at at the moment. Thank you very much, Lauren. Dion and Dennis, I see your calls coming to you right after this ad break. Gary. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Give us a call on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Dion in Belleville. Hi. Uh, good morning. Yes. Uh, Chris, I've got a question. Uh, you, one uses uh, satellite and, and uh, oxygen for flame cutting. Why can't one use compressed air instead of oxygen for the same purposes? They're both uh, oxygen-based, isn't it? Hello, Dion. The the reason you use an, an oxygen and an acetylene torch is that air is only 20% oxygen. So when you blew the, the air down the pipeline, 80% of what you blew down the pipeline would be nitrogen, which is completely unreactive in this setting, really, and therefore wouldn't actually be able to help the acetylene to burn. And the more oxygen you put down the pipe, the more acetylene you can burn, and the more acetylene you can burn, the more energy you can release and therefore cut through your metal. So it makes your torch effectively more efficient if you supply enough oxygen to burn the acetylene completely and cheaper for you too. Okay, Dion, thank you very much for the call. And we move from Dion to Dennis in Table View. Hi, Chris. Chris, how do they measure the, the calorific value or the calories in food? Ah, I'm interested in that. Yeah, good question. And the answer is not terribly accurately, but they do try. And the traditional way of doing this was with something called a bomb calorimeter. And what that meant is that you put the food into a special device which contains a heating element that can burn the food and you take the smoke away from the food and all of the heat away from the burning food and you put it into water. So you effectively put the food in the container that's burning it in a water bath and you very accurately measure the increase in temperature of the water and because water takes a certain amount of energy 4.2 joules per per gram per centimeter cubed per degrees centigrade that it increases in temperature if you measure the amount of temperature increase in the water and you know how much water you've got you know how much energy you put into the water and therefore you know how much energy must have been released when the food was burned how do you burn the food in the first place where well, you ignite it with an electrical supply an electrical heating element and you know how much energy you've put into the electrical heating element to light the food so you can work out how much energy net was released and that's a simple way of working out how much energy is in food. The point is, though, that when you eat the food, your intestine is not an electrical heating element that completely burns food into oblivion. So not all of the food you eat will be absorbed. Uh, not all of the calories, which are therefore in the chemistry, in the food, will be released and made available to your body. And your body's not that efficient either. And also, there are microorganisms in your gut that will have their fair share of what you eat. There may even be some worms hanging around in there that will have their fair share of what you eat. We think that's why Thomas may be so thin when he eats <laughs> enormous amounts of food all the time. But uh, that's maybe a conversation for another day and Thomas's doctor. But anyway, <laughs> the point is that, uh, that the, those estimates on food are an estimate. They're exactly that. You can't rely on them precisely, but they are a good guide and it will depend from one individual to the next how much energy you actually really extract, as you personally, from an item of food. But because you will be the same 
whether you eat a Mars bar or some other form of food or some carbohydrate or something, then the trend will be the same for you all the time. But the, the individual absolute amount of energy you get from anything you eat will differ between people. Norman in Bryanston, good morning. Hi, good morning, good, and good morning, Chris. Mm. Uh, Chris, I have a question which has intrigued me for a long time. I've always wondered why ocean water should vary so much in color, where the depth is constant, the ambient conditions are constant, um, level of sunshine, apparently level of salinity, the color of the ocean floor. And recently in the Adriatic, I noticed differences even between the Ionian and the Adriatic Ocean, separated only by Corfu. And then when we sailed past the volcano of Stromboli, this deep ocean was an absolute cobalt copper sulfate blue. And I often wondered why. Is it, is it mineral content? Hi, Norman. Uh, to a certain extent, the, the minerals will reflect uh, the or the, the sea colour or ocean or water colour can reflect the chemicals that are dissolved in it. And you're right that there are certain things which are coloured salts, which when you dissolve them will affect the way that light interacts with the water or what, what uh, things, the what colours, wavelengths of light the water absorbs or reflects. But also it's very strongly determined by how much algae there is in the water. So if water contains a lot of algal material, microscopic plants, then it will look more green and also temperature makes a big difference, and turbidity as well. If you've got water which tends to sit very still and doesn't stir up lots of silt, then it will look clearer and cleaner than if you've got water where there's a big current running where it's stirring up a lot of silt, and that suspends particles into the water, because if you put tiny particles into the water, it will scatter more light and make the water look more cloudy or a darker colour, or if there's plant matter in there, green colours. So it, there's a lot of factors and it comes down to all of those things really that you mentioned, the chemistry, the temperature, marine life and also how active or, or, or mobile the water is. Thank you very much, Norman. Does that answer your question? Thank you. Yeah, you're happy? Wonderful. Uh, Beggy in Caltonville, hi. Hi, Reddy. Hi, Chris. Um, uh, this question actually follows up your, your initial discussion on uh, implants. I want to find out, is it not possible to use the the human body's energy to, to power those implants? Uh, you mean the, 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 the implants on the body? <laughs> yes, very good question. And people are trying to do that. And they're trying to produce little devices which could eat the same food that you do, effectively. Um, your body supplies its cells with energy in the form of glucose circulating around in your bloodstream, but also fats. Fats are harder to metabolise, which is largely why we use fat as an energy storage molecule, because it stores enormous amounts of energy for not much space. So it's a very efficient way to store energy, but it's very hard to burn it. Carbohydrates like glucose, they're much easier to metabolise, and so people are beginning to explore devices which have some kind of inbuilt uh, enzyme structure which could take up some glucose from the blood and then process the glucose in a similar way to the metabolism of your cells releasing some energy in the process which could then run a micro circuit the processes are not brilliant at the moment though so the amount of energy you can extract that way isn't very high at the moment and so for uh, kind, the kinds of devices which need relatively high current um, or higher voltages, it won't work at the moment. But people are certainly looking at that. And the point is that you know all of us is running um, and burning energy at the rate of about 2 watts per kilogram. So if you've got your average 60 kilo person, we're running at roughly 120 watts. 
So that's quite a lot of energy being converted. So certainly th this process could work, but we just have to, to harness the chemistry and get a bit better at doing it to make it work. And that's a few years away yet. Lovely question. Thank you very much, Biggie. Uh, let's go to David in Santon. Hi. David, good morning. Hi, good morning, Chris. Good morning, Reedy. Um, just a question. Is drinking distilled water healthier for you? Is it better than drinking tap water or bottled water? Hi, David. Uh, a whole range of different answers to this one. Um, bottled water is definitely not better for your wallet. Um, people people seem to charge an absolute arm and a leg for one of the most abundant molecules on the planet and it really gets my goat as to why they charge so much money for hydrogen, a couple of hydrogen atoms glued onto an oxygen atom. Um, so bottled water is, on the other hand, good if there's no source of safe drinking water. Tap water, if the water is clean, is an excellent source of hydration uh, as, as I say, as long as the water is clean. If it's come through um, from dubious sources where it may contain microorganisms or chemicals that uh, have got into it from industry or something, obviously a bad choice. Distilled water isn't going to do you any harm, but it doesn't have any salts in it. Tap water will contain salts leached from the local rocks and the local geology, which are useful to you in small amounts. Distilled water doesn't contain any of those, and, um, and, but it does contain water. And the one thing that will kill you is not a deficiency of, of those micro, microscopic amounts of salts in the short term. What you will die of is dehydration. So if you're desperate, drinking distilled water is fine, but it won't taste as good as tap water. And in the long term, you may develop, um, if you didn't have other su supplies of these salts, you may develop some uh, micronutrient deficiencies, although it's very unlikely because most of them you'll get from food anyway. So it won't do you any harm. It'll, it'll probably just cost you more because distilled water is expensive. Let's go to Graham in Tableview. Hi. Morning, really. Morning, Chris. Yes, good morning. Uh, Welcome. Hello. Yes, Graham. Hello. Welcome. I, I want to know what Chris can tell us about coal fusion motors in respect of their supply of cheap electrical energy. And they've been working on it since 1978. And when will this be available? Oh, hi, Graham. Well, people are trying very hard to do nuclear fusion in all, all range of different ways, and they haven't succeeded yet, unfortunately. Or at least you can make nuclear fusion work, and you can do nuclear fusion in a cold way, but you can't do it in a sustainable way. Uh, just a few months ago on The Naked Scientist, if you, if you give our website a look, you'll find that we interviewed a, a young boy called Jamie Edwards, who's a schoolboy. Uh, he was 13 at the time. He's now 14. He lived up north in, lives up north in Britain. And he has gone into the record books as the world's youngest cold fusioneer. And ah. he's got a simple experiment to, to create nuclear fusion in his classroom. His headmaster gave him uh, a, a pot of money to go and do this experiment because it was something he wanted to do. And he obviously a very nice headmaster. And what he did was to take some heavy hydrogen and put a tiny amount of it in a vacuum chamber and then use a very powerful electric field to accelerate the hydrogen atoms, the heavy hydrogen, deuterium atoms, towards each other. And because they'll accelerate towards these electrodes, uh, occasionally two of them will end up on a collision course and they've got so much energy each that they wham together and they fuse and you can tell that you've done fusion because you can detect neutrons coming off. So that's what he did and demonstrated that you can do nuclear fusion even in your classroom. But doing this in a, in a sustainable way that will actually generate more energy 
than you put into it to make the reaction happen, that is a dream which we've yet to realise in any aspect of fusion. But we know that fusion is definitely a, a very useful and very powerful energy source because it's, it's keeping all of us alive right now. Because if you look up in the sky and you look at the sun, the sun is a massive fusion reactor which has been there for four billion years and is a very efficient way of producing enormous amounts of energy, relatively safely, you could say, if we can make it work. Here's an SMS here. It asks, what happens when one has sleep paralysis? Right. Well, this is a phenomenon that uh, not everybody, but certainly a reasonable proportion of people do describe having experienced. When you go to sleep at night, you go through phases of what we call REM or rapid eye movement sleep. And this, we think, coincides with when people are experiencing dreams. As the night goes on, those dreams become more intense and a richer experience. Often you'll find yourself, though, uh, wanting to act out your dreams or, or your, your dream that you're running along or doing something. And very frequently, if you ask people, uh, and they'll, have you ever been chased in a dream or have you ever had a sort of a scary dream where someone's after you or you need to get away from a wild animal or something, mm. and people will say, yes. And then you'll say, did you find that you could run fast enough? Or, or the other one person who, who was trying to hit you, did you try and hit them back but found you were really weak and weedy? And everyone says, yes. And we think what, what happens when you go to sleep is that to stop yourself getting out of bed and prancing around the bedroom and potentially falling out the bedroom window or, or running down the street with no clothes on and causing a nuisance of yourself, the brain suppresses the flow of motor information coming out of your brain so that you don't act out your dreams. And there's a region in the brainstem called the subcerulea region, which scientists in cats, they've shown that if you switch that region off, it doesn't turn off this flow of information out of the brain. And you, you get these cats when they go to sleep, they'll, they'll uh, start dreaming and then they'll start stalking invisible prey and, and you can see them acting out their dreams. So we think that you've got this special part of your brain which stops your dreams being turned into real movements most of the time. But when you wake up, it doesn't always switch itself off straight away. So for a little while, you can continue to feel that you're paralysed or that your movements don't work properly. Uh, when, and, and this can lead to this phenomenon of, of sleep paralysis. You, you wake up and you think you're completely paralysed. Mm. And that's also why you feel weak and weedy in your dreams and why when someone's after you, you can't run away properly. Speaking of sleep, Andrea, I think you've got a question about sleep. Um, yes, please. Uh, Chris, I want to know, when you go to sleep normally and you wake up, um, your skin is fine. But if you fall asleep again, your skin sometimes makes creases that actually take oh. a long time to go away. Why is that? I don't know. I've never experienced that phenomenon. I wonder <laughs> if it's probably, just a reflection. You're probably young. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 I'm sure not. Um, you, maybe you should try ironing. That No, I'm just kidding. Um, I can only think that perhaps that reflects a disturbed night anyway. Because when, if, you, if you're having a disturbed night, you might end up in, in all kinds of funny contortions in bed and sort of laying funny. And maybe that's what, what throws your skin into all these sort of funny ridges and folds because you've got yourself into an uncomfortable position. But, but that's the best I can do. I'm, I'm not really sure of the answer to that one, to be honest. Hmm, get uh, different pillows, Andrea, and stay on the line. I can give you some tips about where to get the best pillows. No, just joking. Thank you for the call. Matthew in Bedford View, hi. Hi there. Um, I just want to find out, is it possible or even theoretically possible to compress water? Because I know when you freeze water into ice, it expands. It doesn't, it doesn't shrink. Hello, Matthew. The answer is that you can compress water a little bit. 
Uh, we all have this sort of tenet in physics that liquids are incompressible, but that isn't entirely true. They will compress a tiny amount, and, and in the same way, when you make water sort of hotter, it will expand a tiny amount and, or contract a, a certain amount when, when it changes in temperature. The transition into ice, the phase change into ice, is very different, though. That's very dramatic, and that's because the water molecules in a liquid are in a very different uh, configuration than when they're in an ice crystal, and the configuration in ice crystals that the water molecules take up a lot more space, and they're completely different in the way that they arrange themselves in three-dimensional space, which is why they take up much more space, which is why ice is less dense. But you can compress liquids a very tiny amount, uh, and that's certainly the case. Thank you very much, Matthew. And Chris, time flies when you're having fun. We'll chat next week. Thanks, Reedy. Thanks, everyone. And uh, see you soon. Ta-ta. Bye. And don't forget, our conversation with the Naked Scientist always, always available as a podcast. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.